when I joined the CBC, they told me, they were like, we see you come from an activist background and that might be a little bit of a problem. Like, are you going to be able to control your social media when it comes to hot button topics? And at the time, I remember being like, that's a weird question. There's nothing that I posted ever that I don't stand by. And at the time, they pulled up some of my tweets and they said, you tweeted this about President Trump. It had something to do with him being Islamophobic. And I said, okay, but those are accurate. But to them, that was a concern of bias, you know? And I was like, no, that was a tweet that affects me and my community. And if you want to hire me and have access to my communities, you have to allow me to be authentic to my community. And I'm not going to stop speaking up for that. I'm going to push the envelope a little bit. I'm going to make sure that they know that like, I'm not going to stop. This whole week, I actually sent a text to my dad. I was like, the only reason I haven't been fired yet is because of the du'a of my parents. But this week, every time I hit send, I was like, is this the thing that's going to get me fired this week? How does one lose their job for reporting the truth, yet their job description is to report the truth? Now, that's a riddle I can't seem to solve. You're listening to Unsween and Unfilter the Podcast, Episode 17 of Season 3. By now, you may have heard of the open letter that was drafted by journalists urging Canadian newsrooms and editors to provide more nuanced coverage on Palestine and to also include Palestinian voices in regards to the recent attacks that have happened on Gaza, as well as the forced expulsion of the residents of Sheikh Jarrah and the ongoing ethnic cleansing. Growing up Muslim, I always felt unsettled when I would watch the news on TV. It was always the same paintbrush followed by the same brushstrokes, painting Muslims as aggressors and terrorists. This same paintbrush is also used when it comes to what is happening in Palestine, and to no surprise, Palestinians are continuously painted as the provokers and Israel as the victim. How does the media get away with writing news articles that are not always factual? And why is it that they can't say the word Palestine on air? In today's episode, I sit down with a friend of mine, Sumaya Thobo, who is a political producer in Washington, D.C., she has also done work for Al Jazeera English, ABC News, TRT World, and is currently working for the CBC. Sumeya's name was also one of the signatures on this open letter that I had just discussed. She shares with me the behind the scenes of newsrooms and the current response to this letter. I had so many questions for Sumeya in regards to why it's so difficult for media to accurately cover what is happening in Palestine. I wanted to know why Palestine couldn't be set on air by reporters and journalists alike, and her response was a bit heartbreaking. She also discusses the roadblocks her and her peers face when challenging editors to amplify Palestinian voices and their stories. But is it possible that we are also witnessing a slight shift in the narrative? And if so, what can we do on our end to continue to pressure the media? Resistance comes in many different forms, and covering the truth is one of them. Let's dive in. Thank you so much, Samaya, for joining me today. This is a conversation that I honestly find so fascinating because, you know, probably not the only person, but I am always asking why the news media doesn't report on Palestine the way we would love for it to be reported. But there's so much that goes on behind the scenes that we're not well aware of. So I'm glad that you're coming on here and we're going to discuss what happens behind the scenes, why there's so many roadblocks in discussing what is going on in Palestine and so much more. But I would love for people to get to know you a bit better. And if you can just please, inshallah, introduce yourself. For sure. Thank you so much for having me, Dunya. I'm so excited. Like, you know, I'm such a huge fan of this podcast. This is so fun. I'm so happy we get to do this. I love you, Sumaya. I love you. Walla. Okay, so my name is Sumaya Toba. I'm an associate producer. I live in Washington, D.C. I was born in the States and I moved to Egypt when I was six. And then I lived in Canada from the age of 15. When I was in Egypt, it was like 
the second intifada was in full swing and Gaza was right there next to us. And I remember being eight years old and being like taking in all this information. Like the media in Egypt is not clean the way that it is in North America. So there were images that a child wouldn't usually see, you know, in the States. And so I was around this stuff all the time. And I was like, I wish people knew about this. Like, I remember being a kid and being like, I wish people would know about this. And then when I moved to Canada, when I was 15, nobody knew like anything that was going on. Like I remember being 15 years old and being like, let's talk about Palestine. And people in my classes would be like, what's that? Like, it was crazy. And so the only reason I'm sharing all of this in my introduction is because I feel like it shaped me at a really young age to want to go into journalism. And I almost had tunnel vision in a way, like I'm going to grow up, I'm going to be a journalist, I'm going to be a part of this. So I studied journalism in college. I got an internship with Al Jazeera when I was still in school. When I graduated, they were like, we'll give you a fellowship. You can come down to DC for six months. So I packed up enough stuff for six months and I moved down to DC. And then literally as soon my fellowship was ending, the 2016 election happened. And Al Jazeera was like, we need more hands. So if you want to be a freelancer, we'll hire you. So I literally was like, okay, I was supposed to leave home for only six months. And I ended up staying in DC. And I've been here since then. And that was what, like almost five years ago. So it's <laughs> so crazy how life just works. Michelle, and I love the backstory, the backdrop, because I think that's super important as to why you aspire to be a journalist and why you are a producer right now. And Michelle, you are experienced in both national and international coverage, even from just personal experience. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I was freelancing for Al Jazeera, but I also was freelancing for ABC News. I started freelancing for TRT World. Like the first couple years I was in DC, I was freelancing for three different networks. I was bouncing around. I was doing overnight shifts. Then I would sleep for 45 minutes and then like go to another network. My family was like, why are you doing this to yourself? And I was like, no, because, you know, I want to get as much experience as I can. And every newsroom is different. And I felt like I brought something new to the table in each place. But then last year, alhamdulillah, I got hired full time by the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, the CBC. And I've been with them for almost a year now. So the freelancing days are behind me. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, it was it was like I wouldn't take it back for the world because I was in my early 20s and I like really pushed myself. But looking back on it, I'm like, girl, I don't know how you did that. Like I honestly remember your snaps around the election time and everything, even up to like just recently. Yeah, Michelle, you were working like literally right around the clock. And I was like, I was getting my news coverage from you directly instead of actually tuning <laughs> into the news because it's just so interesting to see a fresh perspective. And I felt like you're really unfiltered and you are sharing how you felt about what was going on at that moment. So sometimes it's just nice to see that humanization of reporters in a way where I could see your own feelings and perspective about what is going on. Because sometimes I feel like there tends to be a filter when the cameras do go on. But I could be wrong. Again, that's why it's so important that we are talking about what's going on behind the scenes. And you did mention that, you know, you do work for this Canadian broadcasting company now, which is incredible, mashallah. There was recently an open letter that has been floating around. Do you mind talking about that? And I think this is what honestly sparked this conversation as well. Yes. So just a little disclaimer, like I didn't write the open letter. I do agree with the open letter. I'm not afraid to say that I did sign the open letter. I put it on my Instagram. I thought they worded a lot of things that a lot of us were feeling. The open letter didn't even come from anybody from inside the CBC. So I just want to put that out there. I don't want anybody to like get in trouble. But yes, this open letter did float around. It was written by Canadian journalists, specifically two Canadian newsrooms. And it was just saying basically that in those first couple of days, May 10th, 11th, 12th, we saw a lot of coverage going on on Canadian broadcasting specifically that we felt didn't 
fully accurately represent the situation that we were seeing. And there was a gap in Palestinian voices and Palestinian narrative. And we felt like, you know, it's 2021. Last summer, the CBC and other Canadian networks tried really hard to accurately represent the Black Lives Matter movement. And that's a good thing, too. They tried really hard to to talk to Black voices, activists, you know, people who were familiar with the movement and the situation. And they worked really hard and they patted themselves on the back for diversifying and all that stuff. And then we felt there was a complete disconnect to how they were representing Palestine and Israel now. And so that letter went out. And I think right by now, it's probably gotten about like over 2000 signatures. But what we saw happening was a couple of people, and I can't speak for other networks, but I do know that at the CBC, a couple of people were pulled into meetings by their managers and were told they were going to be pulled from any coverage that having to do with Palestine completely. And it was really troubling for a lot of us. A lot of people were very upset about that, for sure. Why do you think they are doing that? Do you think they're just so fearful that these people are advocating for Palestine and that kind of has never really been done before on, on the news? Like, I mean, we kind of see it from our perspective. Like when you watch the news, it's mostly like pro-Israeli or they try to remain as neutral as possible when I don't know how many times we have to say this. And I feel like we always have to scream it from the mountaintop. Like ethnic cleansing is not a complicated issue. You have an occupier and you have the occupied. You have the oppressor and the oppressed. So why can't the news media just say it like it is and report it like it is? I feel like we really want to dive in into the behind the scenes as to why this happens and why there's so many roadblocks. But what has been the response to this open letter other than like management, you know, obviously calling some people into their offices, which is unfortunate because I mean, it's like what happens to the freedom of speech. But I feel like when it comes to the Palestinian issue or Palestinians in general, we're not afforded that freedom at all. I don't I don't think this is specific to my network at all. I think a lot of networks deal with this idea of perception of bias or like this idea of quote unquote objectivity, which is why a lot of places have really strict social media policies too. Like a lot of journalists can't even have hashtag BLM in their, in their Twitter bios, like stuff like that. Like they are afraid that if you have any of that out there, then people will see their network as biased in any way, or they'll, they'll just perceive it. Even if the network isn't biased, they'll perceive the network as biased and then they'll lose any kind of credibility. But objectivity in itself is like a myth because just like me, everybody who works at any journalism network has their own lived experience, which is why I kind of wanted to talk about my lived experience in my intro, because nobody comes into a journalism network with a complete blank slate with no lived experience. Like everybody is black or Muslim or white or Jewish. Everybody has experiences in their lives that shapes them and shapes how they perceive the world. And that'll shape what stories they think are important, what people they want to talk to. So objectivity is a lie, you know? And so for any network to say we're objective is not true. The open letter just kind of put a spotlight on these networks and made them think, oh my God, now people will think my network is biased, which is, you know, it doesn't... (laughs) It, that your network is biased. You just don't see it. You know what I mean? That's like, exactly. I, I laughed when you said that. I'm like, but it is biased, though. Yeah. That's the thing. And it's just, it's unfortunate. It's like, it has to be like people of color to to be able to see that. But it's others that do not, unfortunately, because they're so unaffected and so far removed from the actual situations that are happening from, like we said, the Black Lives Matter movement to what's going on right now in Palestine. But I do want to thank Black Lives Matter movement because they are paving the way in a lot of things from our protests to even just like the news media rooms for us to be able to speak up and say like we did a semi good job at like covering BLM or we did an amazing job at covering BLM so what's going on with the Palestinian issue why can't we cover that just as much you know and it's not comparing struggles it's just saying that the BLM movement literally paved the way in so many different ways so let's keep the momentum going let's honestly just like talk about
about what it is, what is really going on in the world and, and stop having this like almost a robotic feel when we are talking, when we are like reporting on this stuff. You know, the people who put this letter together, whoever it is, or even just the people who signed it, including yourself, like what are you hoping to happen or to achieve from speaking up about this issue? Because there was a journalist and he said something so interesting. And he said that like he expressed how like embarrassing it is that nuanced news coverage is now found online. And you've seen that that post that was floating around where it says we the people have become the media. How do you feel about that? Because this is something you went to school for, Samaya. This is something that you studied hard for. This is something that you've honestly interned for. You did a lot of work, but then you see now almost like people are just grabbing their news from social media instead of what we think is like reliable sources, which is news media like ABC7, Al Jazeera, all that good stuff. Honestly, I think that this is a reckoning that the news industry has been dealing with, with for some time, which is this disconnect between old school news mediums, which is television, radio, print, and new media, which is anything online in any kind of format, whether that's Instagram, Twitter, whatever. I think broadcast really has to find a way to like fold into it. Otherwise, it's going to die out and people will stop going to it. And the people that signed the letter, most of them are in old media. And, you know, like myself, we love the work that we do. And 90% of the time, 95% of the time, I'm really proud of it. I wouldn't do what I do unashamed and like talk about it and be so vocal about it if I didn't love it and I wasn't proud of it. And so when we criticize it's out of love. It's out of like a dream of making it better. And that's something that I wish management understood, which is like, they see it as we're trying to hurt an establishment, you know, like this network's been around for X many years and it's so great, but it's like, okay, but it could be better if you listen to us, if you allowed us to give our input. And if you listen to us about the things that we want to see, because we love it too. You know, that's what it comes down to. I think we're in the midst of like cancel culture. And it's crazy that these news agencies think that they're going to be canceled, but it's not about being canceled. It's like, can we get to a point where we can criticize one another to better one another? You know, when I criticize news media, like I really don't want to take away from the Muslim journalists, even just in, in general journalists who are advocating for Palestine or real issues like BLM. Like, I don't want to take that away because you guys are working tirelessly behind the scenes. I think as a, as a whole, that's who we're criticizing. It's just media coverage in general and how biased it is and how at times it's neutral. We were just talking about this, how the AP fired a journalist and her name was Emily Wilder, I believe, after old social media posts of hers resurfaced. And all she was was just basically pro-Palestine. But I think it kind of like ties back into what you said that you can't be biased on your social media. You can't show that you're for a certain advocacy group or, or you're advocating for a, cer a certain group of people. But I feel like it's kind of, it's a little hypocritical because you don't see that happening to those who are part of Hillel. We know what Hillel is. You don't see that happening to people who are in pro-Israeli groups in their college campuses or anything like that. Like I said, why is it when it comes to freedom of speech were not afforded that right, but other groups are. Have you ever feared getting fired for just speaking up about Palestine or just any other issue in general? And like, how do you feel about Emily like being fired just like that, just because of her social media post? 100% I have feared. <laughs> like this whole, this whole week, I actually sent a text to my dad. I was like, the only reason I haven't been fired yet is because of the dua of my parents and my grandparents. <laughs> yes. Like as a freelancer, I was never tied to any specific like social media rules. They didn't really care. Like I wasn't tied to any network. So I was able to post whatever I wanted, do whatever I wanted. And I was happy with that. And then when I joined the CBC, they told me, they were like, we see you come from an activist background and that might be a little bit of a problem. Like, are you going to be able to control your social network, your social media when it comes to hot button topics? And at the time, I remember being like, that's a weird question. There's nothing that I posted 
ever that I don't stand by. And at the time, they pulled up some of my tweets and they said, you tweeted this about President Trump. And I, it had something to do with him being Islamophobic. And I said, OK, but those are accurate. But but to them, that was a concern of bias, you know, and I was like, no, that was a tweet that affects me and my community. And if you want to hire me and have access to my communities, because when you hire a hijabi Muslim journalist, you know, I'm going to want to reach out to other Muslims and that's going to make your network look good. So if you want access to that, you have to allow me to be authentic to my community. And I'm not going to stop speaking up for that. And I remember it was a conversation. It was a back and forth that I had with this network before I actually signed my contract. At the time, I was like, OK, you know, I'm, I'm going to push the envelope a little bit. I'm going to make sure that they know that, like, I'm not going to stop. But this week, I really <laughs> like I, every time I hit send, I was like, is this the thing that's going to get me fired this week? <laughs> but isn't this such a weird place to be in? Because it's it like is. all you're doing is spreading the truth. But here you are. You might get fired for spreading the truth. Like it's such a weird position to be in. But it comes back to the perception of bias. And you know what? They're not entirely wrong because when I was doing campaign coverage back when Trump and Biden were running against each other and I was in charge of doing coverage for the Republican National Convention. And I had to reach out to, I think I was reaching out to like local churches to see if they were doing like prayers for President, then President Trump. And uh, I got in touch with a guy on Facebook and he messaged me back and he was like, well, I just went through your Facebook profile. And from what I can tell, you don't want Trump to win. And I, I was like, what is he talking about? And I went back and I looked through my Facebook and my, I don't really use my Facebook anymore. And I was it was like pictures of my family, pictures of Aid. And then I noticed on my cover photos, like if you flip through my cover photos, one of them was like a headline where all the news people were like laughing at something Trump said. I think that was my cover photo for five minutes back in like 2014 or something. And uh, I was like, wow, like, you know what? If that was my cover photo now, he probably wouldn't have answered my messages at all. So it's not that they care what I tweet for them. They care because they think that someone else will see it and not want to talk to them or not trust them because of me. I'm a representation of their network. That makes sense. That makes sense. I think it's just for us, it's frustrating because it's like you want the truth to be out there. But then it's like, how do you grab all these other news stories if people also if the public also perceives you to be biased? So it, it must be so difficult to be able to balance all of that, you know, to work for a news station, to want to report the right news, but then to also want to get the other side and everything. I really want to dive into what's going on in Palestine and just in general, like the news coverage on Palestine. I don't know if you've seen my recent snaps. I really criticized ABC7 because I was just so mortified at the way they covered it. And it was just unfortunate, even just something as minuscule as like covering the protest, which we had 25k people show up to a pro-Palestinian protest that was super peaceful. It was such a beautiful feeling to be able to be in the midst of that march with people who are just advocating for your country, for your homeland and everything. But then you turn on the news because you're so excited to see them actually report about it. And all they said was like, oh, a few hundred people showed up to Palestine and they just want the ceasefire and that's it. And I was like, and then, oh, and then they followed it up with, oh, a synagogue was attacked and a pro-Palestine poster was left behind, which oh my God. is there evidence? Is there evidence that it was an actual pro-Palestinian pro protester that did that? I don't want to get into the details of that because it's like, it's not even worth our energy, but it's like, that's what honestly I think angers the public. It's just like, how do you report on a peaceful protest in that manner? Like, how do you almost kind of like just smear us, but then also make us seem like, oh, it's just a few hundred people. Like nobody really cares about Palestine. Imagine if she actually said 25,000 people showed up for the rights of Palestine. Palestinians. That 
that would have been incredible, but that's not what we got. And that's just like probably just a speck of the things that we wish that they can really cover and cover accurately. But oftentimes, like I also see, which this really angers me, um, and I think that we can't like skid around this, is the fact that they rarely use the word Palestine sometimes or Palestinians. Like they don't give us the agency that we deserve. You see them saying like more so like Israel versus Gaza or Israel versus Hamas. And it almost erases and wipes out our entire identity. And it's like, how do you even say Israel versus Gaza? Like how do you even pit those two against one another? You know what I mean? Let's talk about the language that is being used when news media does cover Palestine. I would love to hear this from your perspective. I have to say, this is probably the most frustrating part of my job right now, because as a producer, I have to work with reporters on their scripts. I have to like make sure that everything is factually accurate, all of that stuff. And myself and one of the reporters that I worked with this week, we had a, a bit of a a fight with one of our higher ups because they wanted to use the phrase Palestinian militants rather than Hamas, you know, something like that. And and we were like, it borders on factually inaccurate when you paint it that way, because it's not that it's not like that. You know, you, no matter how many times you try to phrase it like that, it's just not like that. And then, you know, you get into other things like all the Israelis, quote unquote, killed, but the Palestinians, quote unquote, died. And I, as soon as I pointed that out, the reporter that I work with, because mashallah, she's just like the best person in the world. She was like, oh, why do we do that? And she changed it. She was like, not me. And she changed it. And I even asked her, I was like, why did you do that? And she was like, oh, you know, I'm just trying to switch up my language, like killed, died, died, killed. She's like, I just switch it up. And I'm like, no, no, we have to be conscious because if you talk to a Palestinian, they know that we do that. Like they know that the Palestinians died and the Israelis were killed. So we have to be extra super conscious with how we write our script. And I feel like for someone like me, who's been reading these news pieces for as long as I've been aware of this situation, it was like, for me, getting that script in my hand, right away, I looked at how we phrased that. But for her, someone who's not familiar with the situation and doesn't really know what's going on, she didn't even notice that she did it. You know what I mean? I feel like the problem here is a lot of things, but also that there are a lot of reporters reporting on a situation that they don't really understand. So earlier this week, I had to go to a protest with another correspondent, and there were, of course, a lot of signs that said like, this is the ongoing Nakba. And she turned to me and she was like, what's what's a Nakba? My heart kind of stopped because I was like, this is a correspondent who has decades of experience, like decades. And she has been to the Middle East several times and she's done so much work. And I was like, uh, I sounded like an encyclopedia. I was like, it translates to catastrophe. And it's what happened in 1948 when the Palestinians were forced to leave their homes. Like I literally just, I just spouted off all this information. And I noticed there is such a disconnect that these reporters who are in North America and, you know, aren't foreign correspondents. And it's not their job to be experts on everything. But if you're given a story, you should have a basic understanding of the context and the genesis of the situation. And that doesn't happen. So when they write these stories, they see it as a a story about 10 days of conflict. But when we read them, we know every, we know all the history, we know all the context. So for us, this is the next chapter. I feel like the language thing is, is tricky because every newsroom has its own guide. And like, if you go to Al Jazeera, they have no problem saying Palestine. Their guide is amazing. When I worked there, it was a dream. They were so careful about, instead of using refugee, you use the word migrant or you, you know, they, they work really hard to humanize people. 
But in other newsrooms, it's not like that. And there's less of an understanding of that context and where all these situations come from. I think, inshallah, with time and with people like me and my colleagues who do know the context and do know the situations, when we start to speak up more and we start to climb the ladder of the hierarchy, if I, if I don't get fired, inshallah, inshallah, everybody make the offer to me. If I don't get fired, then like we can make a lasting change. And so, you know, it is a work in progress, but... I remember when I was in college, like I wrote a paper on Black Lives Matter and I remember it was super controversial and I got called into my professor's office and he was like, you know, we don't know yet if this is a terrorist group. Like that was a literal sentence he said to me. He was like, we don't know yet. He was like, so I don't know if you want to align yourself with them. This was a real conversation I had like back in 2013, 14. I remember being like, okay, well, it's important. You know, it's important to me and we have to talk about it. And now when you walk down D.C., it says Black Lives Matter Plaza. You know what I mean? It says BLM. It says Black Voices Matter. It says Black Lives Matter everywhere. And I think BLM stems from 400 plus years of oppression in this country. And it took time for them to become a movement that is recognized in popular culture and is in, you know, in movies and rap songs and is talked about openly, is is painted on our streets. And I think us as a movement of Palestinian, you know, liberation in this country, we're a relatively young movement. And it's going to take a lot of time for us to become something that people aren't afraid of. But even in the last five years, since Black Lives Matter has become more prominent, we see how our movement has kind of shifted into the mainstream. And I think that the same way that news networks were afraid to talk about BLM back when the Ferguson riots were happening, we're going to see a shift in how this movement is talked about as well. At least inshallah, that's my hope. And that's why I think I started the episode with saying like, it's the Black Lives Matter movement. Like I even discussed this with Nuran in an earlier episode. Like this is why like they honestly truly paved the way. It's almost like a slingshot. They kind of like pushed us out into the like into the open, like and where we're able to really fully express who we are and everything like that. So they gave us the head start that we needed, especially because when you think of the Black Lives Matter movement, this is happening in our country right here where they're experiencing the most racism. So that's why there's there was this huge momentum. But for us, it's almost like hard to allow people to really connect because what's happening in Palestine is in Palestine. But we have to also so connect the dots for people and we have to let them know how you as just a U.S. citizen, you are complicit almost in a way of what's going on in Palestine. Like I'm complicit. It's unfortunate that I'm complicit in the ethnic cleansing of my own people. Look, that's that's a hard pill to swallow because it's like you're living behind, not to sound dramatic, but you're living behind enemy lines because this is the country that truly aids Israel and its existence. And for as long as like there is the existence of Zionism, peace will not exist. It will not exist at all. So this is unfortunate. But, you know, there was certain things like I, I was reading, it was so it was so true because like language is powerful because in a way it kind of erases the power imbalance that's happening between Israel and Palestine. It also dehumanizes Palestinians when you just say died versus killed. And then when it came to our third holiest site being attacked, like literally attacked, and there's news media coverage on it internationally in Palestine, but you don't see any of it here. Why is that? Like, I just, I, I don't know. I can't fathom how is that possible for the third holiest site in Islam to be attacked and for the world to be silent in that regard. Can we also kind of talk about like why there's so many roadblocks when it comes to discussing Palestine, I know you touched upon some, but do you have any stories from like, even just like your fellow coworkers behind the scenes, they really tried to advocate for Palestine and they were shut down? Oh my gosh, I have, <laughs> I have so many. So this week alone, or in the, in the days leading up to Eid, so along May 10th and this past week, I think I had 
I want to say eight or nine phone calls with people from different networks across the continent, both in the States and in Canada, people calling me saying, I'm going to quit my job today. The way that you said you're complicit. So you are complicit just by paying taxes. Like you are complicit by, by following the law, which is okay. But something that I have had to, well, not okay, but like it's, it's, yeah, we get it. You can't fight it. It's not okay, but it, it happens. So you are complicit by paying taxes, but something that myself and my coworkers have had to talk about for the last 12, 13 days is like, we are now complicit in the perpetuation of the oppression of the Palestinian people. Like we, if we don't say something, then we are allowing this to continue. That was a really, really difficult thing for a lot of people, myself included. I woke up the other day after a really, really awful day at work. And I told my husband, I was like, I'm going to quit. I was like, I'm going to quit. And I'm going to tell everybody what happens behind the scenes. And you know what? Like, I'm going to burn the world down. And my husband looked at me and he was like, no, you're not. You're going to stay in it. And you're going to climb to the top. He was like, you're going to be good at your job. You're going to climb to the top. And then you're going to change everything from the top down. Inshallah. Inshallah. But <laughs> but let me tell you, it doesn't feel like that sometimes. I have had conversation after conversation with someone this week being like, I cannot continue to do my job and feel good about myself in the morning. Like, I just can't. It was a lot of things. It was pushback from editors about saying Palestine on the air. It was not wanting to center local Palestinian voices. So why? Why can't we? Why can't Palestine be said on air? What is it? Obviously, this is not my opinion, but they think that, yeah, you if you say Palestine on the air, it is it is admitting basically the existence of a Palestinian state. And technically, there is no Palestinian state. There's the West Bank, there's Gaza, you know, there's Palestinian territories, but there is no Palestine, according to these media. And that's that is in media policy. It is in ink. You know what I mean? Like, this is something that my colleagues and I are not going to be able to change in a week. But it is something that we have our eye on that we want to change eventually, inshallah. When I say it is a systemic problem, it is. They don't want us to say Palestine on the air. If there is a guest and he talks about Palestine, we allow it. You know, if somebody comes on our air and says Palestine, Palestine, it is allowed. But for someone from our network to represent our network, we can't say Palestine. We can't tweet Palestine. We can't say Palestine as a state exists. We're not allowed to do that because that's taking that is a political stance. That is so heartbreaking. It's so heartbreaking to hear because it's like that kind of like it just I don't know. I guess that's like the core of, of our resistance is to recognize that Palestine does exist because it really does. It's unfortunate. It's so unfortunate. But also, if you're like some of my friends who are Palestinian, you come from a Palestinian lineage, your grandparents are Palestinian, they lived in Palestine. But now because of this oppression, you were forced to move to the States, you were forced to move to Canada. You're still Palestinian. How are you going to tell a Palestinian journalist that Palestine doesn't exist? You are erasing this person who works for you. You're erasing them and everything that they grew up with and stand for. And that is so heartbreaking to me. Like, I can't even express to my friends who are working for these networks who are Palestinian, like the pain they feel every day, I can't even begin to imagine. And and that makes me even more angry that this person has to go to work and erase who they are. It's awful. So let me talk about some of the roadblocks. Alhamdulillah, you know what? Like, honestly, this is why I'm saying the dot of my parents kicked in because I was put on Palestine coverage and I stayed there all week. I really did get to form the coverage for us this week. So I'm, I'm a little bit proud of that. But for some of my colleagues, they were not allowed to do any Palestine coverage, even on a local level. 
And they got a lot of reasons back, whether it was we don't have the resources, we don't have a reporter to put on the the protest or we don't have a reporter to send to interview this family or whatever. Sometimes they were told, you know what? It doesn't get shares. It doesn't get clicks. So we, we don't want to do a story that, that no one's going to read or no one's going to watch. And this is the most upsetting one. They say we don't want the complaints. Whether people know it or not, when you complain to a news network, they have to read it. They have to respond to you. Like, it, I don't know. I don't know why, but it is like a responsibility of theirs. And so when they do a story on this, they know 100% they're going to get a complaint, whether it's from us or whether it's from, you know, someone who supports Israel, whoever it is, they know that they're going to get a complaint. I think one time one of my one of my colleagues or someone was telling me they even got a complaint once from like an English literature professor because the grammar was wrong. Like oh, they wow. just like they just know that this story is going to get eyeballs and they know that people are going to complain. Are they aware of like the social media complaints? Because like, obviously, like, that's me. But now if I know that they actually do read complaints, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to definitely be drafting letters to my You're like creating a monster here. But I did not actually know. I thought that for some reason, they probably just ignore that. But what about social media tags and complaints? Are they even aware of that? Or is that maybe just too much at once? And because of, of social media, sometimes our stories do obviously disappear too. Yeah, social media is different because I'm not aware of how each news network handles social media, whether they have one specific person or whether it's a department. So for my network specifically, I know that they have one person who is responsible for any complaint from anywhere. This week, when people were coming to me who weren't in journalism and were saying like, why did you guys report this? Why did you do this? I literally just said, email this person. (laughs) And that person is going to hate me forever because they got a record-breaking amount of complaints this week. But it is their job to hear these complaints and it is the audience's job to keep them in line. Otherwise, the news the news can report whatever they want. The media can report whatever it wants. They have to know that they are also being held accountable the same way politicians are held accountable. The public has to let them know that like what you're saying is not fair. It's not accurate. And so I don't feel a lot of guilt when I share that email address. <laughs> That's amazing. Do you think, though, that, OK, if they receive so many complaints, like maybe you, it's hard for you to speak on behalf of other um, news stations because it is. It's just like, do you think that they will actively actually change if there was like a surge and a surplus of like complaints sent to them in regards to how they're covering Palestine? Because recently, and this was very disheartening to see, but and again, it's like thanks to social media. And it's so unfortunate because you don't want to just grab all your news from social media. You want to grab it from the actual news media stations. But they, this is how they reported it. I believe it was in Canada. It was actually in Canada where there was a group of protesters. I believe they were leaving the protest or pro-Palestinian supporters, of course. They were leaving the protest. They got antagonized by JDL. There was a guy, a bunch of them actually with knives and bats and they started antagonizing these protesters. And then all the news media reports is when the protesters actually attacked one of the JDL members. And the way they titled it, they said, pro-Palestinian protesters attacked elderly man. You dig a little bit deeper, not that deep because thank God for social media, you see the whole video of what happened. They were JDL members. He had a knife. He tried to attack them. Somehow his entourage left him alone and the pro-Palestinian protesters were defending themselves. Why can't we, and that's another word, why can't we be allowed the ability to defend ourselves? And it's like we always see that meme where it's like all the cameras are like facing Gaza when Gaza is like sending their rockets, but you don't see what's behind the news media, which is 
Israel basically sending over all their rockets and then they have the Iron Dome. So it's like, it's unfortunate that sometimes you do see that one-sided. Like, how do you feel about that? Especially even just like that specific story that happened in Canada. So that story actually is funny that you bring up because my news network was one of the first to report that that was inaccurate. And the way that that happened is because as a result of all of this, myself and a group of other colleagues are now in a WhatsApp group. (laughs) Like, as soon as our coverage started, I messaged one person and was like, our coverage is wrong. Like we need to do something. She was like, me, yeah, I agree with you. And then slowly by, and surely by the end of like literally 24 hours, there was 40 of us in a group and we were all sharing what was the response we were getting back, the pushback we were getting back from our editors, you know, who can we talk to, who are voices that are good to listen to. So somebody sent that video in the group and said, you know, this just happened. People are saying pro-Palestinian protesters, but I think this guy is JDL. And so we all pooled our resources and we were able to hunt down like information that proved that he was JDL. And then that's how our network was the first to say, this is suspicious, you know, this is reported inaccurately and here's what actually happened. That story is a great example example of just how things are changing. There are people behind the scenes who are like actively trying to better the situation. But it's kind of like me and you were saying at the beginning of this call, like the idea that we always have to put a disclaimer, like we are not an anti-Semitic movement and we are against racism in any form and that's or discrimination in any form. Like that's not what we're about. It breaks my heart. But like these protests made me nervous. You know, I felt like it was only a matter of time before a video like that surfaced. And I'm just so grateful that the one that got the most attention ended up being fake. And you don't know who's antagonizing these pro-Palestinian protesters because some of them are bringing out their cameras after the fact of maybe they're hurling all these racist remarks towards the pro-Palestinian protesters. And I think as a Palestinian protester, if you're being attacked, you have the right to defend yourself. When it comes to the Palestinian movement, it's like we can't resist. We just basically have to just lay there and just take it all. And that's like, that's not okay. So I really commend you for doing all the work that you do, for having such a huge impact on your specific news station, for being able to kind of like reel in the facts and, and make sure that people are are like, you know, held accountable for the way that they report, because I think it's so important. I'm glad that your news station was one of the first to report this story accurately, because it's, it's unfortunate. Like, I'm starting to see all these anti-Semitic posts and stuff like that. We're Semites ourselves. I can't yeah. be anti-Semitic <laughs> when I'm a Semite. Like, it just, yeah. and people don't understand. That. They think that's just reserved for anyone who's Jewish. It's like, no, but we're Semites as well. So we can't be anti-ourselves. Like, so much of these narratives have been ingrained in our minds that, like, even you forget that you're a Semite yourself. And then, like, even just Hamas in general, like, they want you to believe that it's a terrorist organization that like you feel weird saying I support Hamas like it's certain things like that's like you have to kind of like sit back and really think about like even you yourself you have to learn too like even if I'm a Palestinian I'm still learning a lot of what's going on behind the scenes of our history and how I can better like refute all these false claims but this was such a perfect transition into realizing that there is actually a shift happening as much as like we do see um, a lot of biases happening in the news media even though that's not what they want but unfortunately it seems that way there is a shift happening. Like you have Miriam Barghouti who said something along the lines of like Israel's the only ally of American white supremacy in the Middle East. And that's why the U.S. allies itself with Israel. Like that's something that you would have never heard years ago before. You know, she even called the, the U.S. to be more accountable and not just use words such as deeply concerned and we condemn this and that. No, she's like, you know, they need to be held accountable for like using live ammunition on children. If people really want to talk about de-escalation, they need to talk about that. They can't just say both sides. We can't both sides slash all lives matter. This 
this situation that's happening. And another thing that I thought was so powerful and like we just talked about, she also like called out the reporter for saying Israeli Arab. She's like, no, you can say Palestinian. Like that's who they are. But now it's so interesting to see that they're not allowed to say Palestine, but she was. And I'm glad yeah. that she was able to call it out. So that was just like such a prime example of what you what you discussed. Like she basically said, like honor their identity. And I, I don't know that moment and everything she said was so powerful. But that moment right there, I was like, it made me want to tear up because I was like, you know, you are erased from news media in every which way. And like they can't even bring themselves to say Palestine or Palestinian. But here you ha- here you have Miriam saying, no, you're going to say Palestine. You're going to say Palestinian. What are your thoughts on that? On, on you know, this shift happening? And we can't take away from Hamad al-Kurd and his family and his interview with CNN. Yeah. He did it so eloquently. But like, what are your thoughts on this shift that is happening that you are witnessing? Just having more Palestinian voices in news media coverage. You know what? I think it it kind of comes down to, like I said, not just this movement being new in this country, but also our community is new in this country in a way. It's so funny because when I was growing up, nobody wanted to be a journalist. Like everybody's parents were saying doctor, engineer, lawyer. But I think what we're seeing now is all of the kids who were my age and grew up wanting to be creatives or wanted to be organizers, wanted to be politicians, wanting to be things, you know, a variety of careers. We're all kind of growing up and coming into our own. And I feel like that's where that shift is kind of happening also, because now you have Middle East experts who are not immigrants, but they are first generation, they're second generation generation and their English is perfect and they are American educated. They're Canadian educated. So in the eyes of media networks, they're trusted. You know, they're one of you. They're one of us. They're able to go on the air and say Palestine is real. Like Palestine exists. This is the Palestinian narrative. Without that voice, I feel like the news network would look at it as a foreign problem. But because we have so many people who are born and raised American and they still identify as Palestinian, it causes people to be like, whoa, this is a problem that we have to face. It's here. It's, you know, it's one of us. It's American. You know, it's it is what it is. And that's where you see also we have on social media more graphics, infographics and more things to kind of break down the problem, contextualize it. And you see, like I said, organizers who are now my age in their late 20s, early 30s, who have been organizing for 10 plus years. So when something happens, they they snap into action. They know what to do. This movement has kind of matured with us and has grown up with us. And so we are able to work in a way that is not new to us. We're not like little kids anymore. And on top of that, there's so much more intersectionality and so much work happening with other movements that we were able to put our hand across and like reach out to other groups, other movements. And we see how our oppression is all linked. These protests that I've been seeing are the most diverse crowds I've ever seen for Palestine protests. When I was growing up and I was in Canada, the Palestine protests would be 50 people, all Arabs, chanting in Arabi. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like my mom was telling me her chants. I was just like, can I say these chants? I'm like, well, now I think they kind of changed, mom. Like, but like, you can definitely. <laughs> come through and you know you know what there's nothing wrong with, I want you have to keep the heritage alive yes. so there's nothing there's nothing wrong with like Gaza, Gaza, Hariya, you know yes. like and I, I want to honor that but we also have to recognize that in order for us to be intersectional we have to use English mm-hmm. you know like we have to be able to to bring people in because we have allies now and they want to support us and so we can't be exclusive we have
have to be able to like work with everyone. Exactly. Like it's not being discriminatory about like just only Arab speaking or our parents or anything like that. But like I literally was just discussing this with a friend, Samaya. Like we both agree like we need to be able to be very inclusive if we want other people to join our movement and not just have out of voices. Like we need to diversify this movement as much as possible because it does impact us on so many levels and impacts so many different people. And we need to reel them in rather than push them out. Exactly. And so I, yeah, so I think that there's a big shift happening from all of those avenues, from us growing up, from intersectionality, from American born Palestinians and Arabs who are now in careers able to speak on the air about this, you know, in a, in an expert way. But I think like, I don't want to take away from the hundreds of people that I've been in touch with now who are also journalists who are like me, were like starting off in their careers, but now have a, a stronger foothold in the industry. And people want to know what we think. The same way that I've been reached out to by so many young Muslim or non-Muslim journalists who are allies, I've also been reached out to a lot of higher ups, a lot of people who have senior positions at other networks and at my network. And they they'll say to me, you know what, I trust your judgment. You know, you're good at your job. What or what should we be doing differently? What are we doing wrong? And I think like the way that the news has covered this issue before is just because that's the way that they've always done it. And now there's an opportunity for them to look internally and realize that there's a problem. And I think that some networks will step up to the challenge. We saw Sky News had amazing coverage these past couple days. They did great work. And even CNN, by diversifying the guests that they allowed on their air, did a great job too. We saw Vice, Lama Al-Aryan, I think her name is. She had an amazing documentary. I like watched the whole thing. I couldn't stop. It was so fabulous. I think we are starting to see it change the, the industry in a way. And it, and it will continue to change as myself and my colleagues grow up and get higher positions and have more of an influence. So I am super optimistic, inshallah. All the people that I that called me and said, I'm going to quit this week, none of them quit. Alhamdulillah. Because we need you guys. We really do. Honestly, like, and that's what I said to them. One of my friends, he's such a good friend of mine. We went to grad school together. He wrote a story about the intersectionality between the Palestinian movement and BLM. There was a lot of back and forth about whether or not he should include Jewish voices in the piece. And he felt like there wasn't a genuine space for that aspect in the story. But in order to represent both sides evenly, he, he included it. And he called me and he was a little bit upset. And he said, you know, this wasn't the piece that I wanted to write. And I'm really, I'm annoyed that I had to put it in there. And I'm hurt that I wasn't able to do justice to these Palestinians who like took time out of their day to talk to me. And I just told him, I was like, listen, like you cannot quit. You have to stay in it. These stories are important. Like we have to, we have to keep it up. We have to keep doing what we're doing. I was like, you're going to do what we all do, which is you're going to have a bad day. You're going to go home. You're going to sleep it off and you're going to get up and do it again the next morning. So inshallah, like we have bad days and we're able to like move past them. I think that's what we're hoping for, for one day for us to be able to talk about Palestine and Palestinians and censor those voices without it being a package deal where we have to include the voices of Jewish people too. And this isn't to sound anti-Semitic or anything like that. It's just like for once, I would love to just have a segment just with Palestinians and just us describing the, our plight and everything like that without having to include anybody else's narrative with it. Because it almost kind of in a way feels like our narrative is not good enough. Like it's half the story, but it, when it's really honestly the whole story in itself. But I don't want to take away from 
from our Jewish allies because we have so many of them. There's more of them than there are of Zionists. And I think that's like the, the energy that I want to keep. That's like the energy that I really want to focus on. I see the incredible work that you do, Samaya. I see the action steps that you're taking within your own new station. And I see even just like your other coworkers and what they're doing and, and your peers. What is it that we, the public, the audience can do? Because other than, you know, myself complaining about the news media, what is that I can do to, to be able to start witnessing a change, a shift in change? Because we are, like I said, we are witnessing this shift in the narrative. But if we want to escalate it, what can we do on our part instead of just sitting back and complaining about the news media? I think when it comes to the news specifically, we have to learn as a community to maintain a relationship with our local stations and our national stations, because I think uh, like a lot of news networks are going to stop covering it now because there's a ceasefire. And just because there's a ceasefire doesn't mean the occupation is gone, doesn't mean that Palestinians are living a normal life. We have to advocate for continual coverage. And that might mean asking networks to open a bureau in the Middle East. Some networks don't have bureaus in the Middle East and they'll fly reporters in at the last second. And that reporter doesn't really know what's going on, doesn't understand the context, has to like catch up on the flight over. There are so many ways that we could improve our coverage. And some of that you need money for, like there's so much, there's so much stuff going on. But I think asking our networks to have a continuous coverage of what is going on. And that might mean continuing to center local Palestinian voices, but it all comes down to maintaining a relationship with our local networks. And I do think that that's something the pro-Israel lobbies are very good at. The pro-Israeli lobby in the United States, I mean, people talk about this in a way that is anti-Semitic and plays into Jewish stereotypes about having a hold on the media and having all this money, which is not true. But the pro-Israeli lobby in the United States is very strong, which is why you can see there's not much of a difference between the Democrats and the Republicans when it comes to foreign policy. And that's because the Israeli lobby has been able to maintain a relationship and able to keep that relationship there and maintain their narrative. And that's why it's only recently that we're able to see people like AOC or Ilhan Ahmad or Bernie Sanders, or actually Bernie's been around for a while, but you're able to see newer voices because they don't have time to build that relationship with the pro-Israeli lobby. And they're not interested in maintaining a relationship with that lobby. But the pro-Israel lobby has been able to maintain a relationship and maintain funding to a lot of places. And that continues to allow their version of events on the air. And it's something that I think we as a community have to learn how to do our, as well. You know, I don't, I'm not an expert on that. I don't really know how to do that. It's also because like, I think just marginalized groups of people just yeah. don't have trust in certain things. And I think that's like the first thing that we do. I'm not speaking on behalf of everyone, but like the first thing that I do is like, I write off whoever I feel like didn't cover me right or isn't supporting pro-Palestine. But I think when it comes to the Israel lobby, that's not what they do. They stay on that person. They keep them on their toes until they hear what they want to hear. That's where we need to start focusing our attention on. And it's 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 really difficult because again, like as a marginalized group of people, you've always been shut out. And now here you are trying to almost like work your way back into something that you don't trust anymore, if that makes sense. So it's like, I definitely understand where you're coming from when you're talking about the Israel lobby and how they make sure they work around the clock to keep people on their toes. And I think sometimes when it comes to us in the Palestinian movement, like when it comes to the news, the majority of the time when I'm paying attention to it is if Palestine is really on the news. And it's like that... And then that's when I critique it. But it's like it should be critiqued all year round. You know what I mean? You have to exactly you phrased it so perfectly like us as I think I do this too and I feel like us as a community post 9-11 we almost detached from the media completely because we were like they don't represent us properly so why are we going to tune in you know and and that that relationship of distrust has been there for decades so it's like why would we even listen to you why would we even trust what you say I don't know a single Arab 
who reads the news and is like, this is 100% accurate. You Never know in I mean? my life. <laughs> Never. <laughs> Never. <laughs> but what we have to do, it's exactly what you said. What we have to do is not write it off, but rather we have to be vocal about when we're not happy because that's when they're like, oh, these people are actually paying attention to what we say. They're holding us accountable. Like we have to be better at what we do. Otherwise, we're going to have to deal with all this paperwork. And I know that sounds crazy, but that's literally what they care about is the paperwork. When you complain, there is a lot of paperwork that goes into it. And you so- guys heard some idea. Everybody write a complete letter right now. Everybody that downloads and listens to the episode, you better write a complete letter. Somebody's like, I'm going to kill you, Dunya. <laughs> no, honestly, the thing that's so funny is like, that's all I've been telling people to do. Like every time someone... Because Arabs are hilarious, like something on any news network anywhere is inaccurate. And then I get a call like, Samoya, why did you guys say this? I'm like, I'm not responsible for like friggin' CNN. You know? Exactly. Like, why are you calling me? So I just tell everyone, like, look up who the person is to complain to and then flood their inbox, flood their voicemail, because you know what? It does make a difference. It does. It really does because they start to realize like, wow, these people do actually care and they do want their voices to be heard. And this is not a movement that we want to be against. Like, that's the thing. Like, you got to look at it as like, that's why it's just so important when we stand together and we're unified and we're all on the same page. Even just recently, just even like writing letters to our local representatives, congresswomen and men. And like, that's what's so important. Like us being able to like vocalize what, why we're hurting and what change we need to see. I think it's really important that we always stand together. So I think it's time that we're more active. And I, I do see it, Mashallah. I do see that a lot of people are like taking the steps necessary to see the change that we want to see. So I really, really want to thank you, Samaya. This was such an interesting episode. I've always been fascinated by this topic. Well, fascinated is a nice word. I was always just angered by this topic. Like, why aren't we covered? But I've learned so much from you right now. And inshallah, like the narrative continues to shift. Inshallah, we do see more Palestinian voices. Inshallah, just in general, just any oppressed group to be able to be highlighted in the best way possible. Like I said, I really want to thank you for your time, for your efforts, for your voice in these newsrooms and for you even just like challenge your employers and whoever you're working for it doesn't matter who you're working for but to always have your voice heard and to also be our voice as well and it's it's just incredible and it's powerful and that's why I want it to be a two-way street where it's not just you doing all the work and having that responsibility it's also up to us to be able to see the change and make the change that we want to see so thank you is there a way that people can reach out to you to support you not even just reach out to you but just to follow your work is it just on Instagram you can follow my Instagram. I think my Instagram is probably my most authentic voice. My, my Twitter is watched. Yes. <laughs> so I tend not to tweet as much as I would like. Um, my Facebook, I don't really use at all. So Instagram is probably the best way. And I'll definitely tag it. Thank you so much, Samaya. I, I learned a lot from you. And I hope a lot of people benefit from this episode and that we kind of look at the media from a different lens. Uh, no pun intended, basically. But <laughs> I, I just absolutely love this. And I think the more conversations that we have about this, the more educated we are and the more that we can mobilize our movement. And inshallah, like I said, see the change that we want to see. Inshallah. Inshallah. Thank you for having me. This was a much nicer outro than I deserve. Like, no, it's honestly, it. no, it's honestly not just me. Like there are so many, so many, so many journalists right now who have been fighting like tirelessly to the point of exhaustion. I know that it looks bad on the screen, but behind the screen is like so much more work. If there's just one thing that I could get out to everybody who's going to listen is like this movement needs everybody in every possible avenue. So if you have a strength, if that's art, if that's media, if that's writing, if that's makeup, if that's whatever, like follow the thing that you're strongest at and use that to contribute to the Palestinian liberation movement because we need people from every possible way. That to me, I think the diversity and just how we approach it is 
is what's making the biggest change right now. And I can't wait to see inshallah in like five years, 10 years, how our movement has grown. That was such a powerful way to end it. That's so true. Everybody, we live in a social media world. We all have an audience, even if it's not a huge audience, we all have an audience. So impact your audience, educate your audience as much as you can. Honestly, like this is the time that we need to use our voices. And I think we need to keep the momentum going. And I can't stress that enough. And I think a lot of people are jumping onto this movement and it's incredible to see. And it's just so incredible to witness the changes that we're seeing right now. And again, thank you, Samaya. I know you don't think it's all on you, but Wallah, mashallah, you, you do a lot of great work. I've been following you for a few years now. And and I just always just I'm in awe and how you report and how authentic you are and how you put your emotions into it. And sometimes we need to see that. I think a lot of times it's just like this robotic feel wherever we go. Like we need to be able to be human again and be real. And I, I absolutely love just how authentic and how raw you are. So thank you so much, Samaya. Thank you for this conversation. Thank you for even thinking about this topic. This is something I complain about all the time. I never even thought of making a podcast episode about it. So I'm always, always learning from you. Mashallah. Thank you, Samaya. Thank you. Alhamdulillah. I hope I did it justice. You did. <laughs> Ha <laughs> ha.